Well, good morning. Good to see you, church. It gives me great joy knowing you're going to show up and be a part of us worshiping and listening to God's word together. So I'm glad you're here. Welcome if you're a guest this morning. Uh, we're in a series on Leviticus. This is the last one. This has been quite a deal. We've been, you know, Robert and I have been planning to get through the whole Bible in 15 years, and we're about year 10. Leviticus isn't the first one you jump into, you know. So <laughs> we thought this was pretty brave of us, and uh, it's been good to, to go through this. You know, I don't know what your week has been like. Mine's been quite a week. You ever had one of those weeks where it was like quite a week? Yeah, I've had one of those, you know. And, uh, and then to, to add insult to injury, my Huskies lost to the Ducks uh, yesterday. And that's like about the worst thing that can happen to a Husky is to lose to the Ducks. And so I'm mourning that. Uh, it could be worse. You could be in Nebraska. Right, who's lost six in a row, first time ever, and I have lots of friends in Nebraska. But they're saying we didn't lose till overtime yesterday, so that was a better day than the previous five weeks. So anyway, this is sort of the week it's been. And, uh, but here's the, here's the thing that God is calling us to in the middle of whatever life is bringing you, is to be a holy people. That's been the, the, the message of this, right? We, there's a lot of things we don't have control over. In fact, most things we don't have control over, do we? Uh, but this is what we do have control over. Uh, we're called to be holy as God is holy, and we have control of that. We can, by his spirit's power and by his word and by uh, friends and family that walk with us, we can be a holy people. And so that's our aim in this series. That's what we're going for. And so this morning, we are going to wrap it up. Um, next week, we begin a series on uh, a vision series. We'll go five weeks and end it in Vision Sunday on November 18th. We've got a lot going on in our church family. We get to see some of it even this morning as we send out another church that we're so excited to do and so thrilled to be a part of people that want to team with us in the gospel. Uh, so that'll begin next week, a vision series for five weeks. And today, we finish up uh, Leviticus. We look at chapters 24 to 27. And so uh, we'll look at this in four parts this morning. First of all, an invitation to his presence, which we'll see in verses 1 to 9 of 24. And then God's standard of holiness, which we see through a little narrative, verses 10 to 16 of that chapter. And then finally, or second, thirdly, um, holiness in our possessions and uh, land. And then finally, obedience or disobedience. What are we going to do? It's our choice. So there we go this morning. Uh, and we'll begin by looking at an invitation to his presence. Now, um, Verses 1 to 9 in chapter 24 brings us into the tabernacle and uh, some of the furnishings that are there in the holy place. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 24, verse 1, saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meaning. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever through your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. So here is a picture of the lampstand um, in the holy place. And we move on now. Verse 5, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf and you shall set them in the two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. And each Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. 
It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, the priests, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. And so the tabernacle was set up, and the people were to come to the tabernacle to meet with God. It was a place of his presence. Um, and God is inviting us into his presence and invited people to be worshipers of him. And as the priests came into the holy place, there were a couple of fixtures there um, that are noted in this chapter. One was uh, lamps, and of course, uh, um, they needed light to be able to see, to do their work. The priests did. Um, and then there was bread, um, and the, the priests needed food to eat to do their work there. Um, and so these were, in, at one level, of practical needs. And I like, actually, how uh, the people of God were involved in, in making oil available for the lamps. This was kind of a good picture of God's people working together to keep this place of worship uh, going forward. As all of them were to be involved in beating olives to provide oil for the lamps. I think that's a, a cool picture and a good, good picture for us, actually, to be involved in God's kingdom's work and the advancement of kingdom through his community of believers in the place of worship. And then we see, uh, again, the food that they were to eat. It was called the bread of the presence. So when they ate, they were to eat uh, being very aware of the presence of God. That this is an invitation to come into the tabernacle to meet with God and to eat and to have fellowship with God in his, in his presence. Now, I think we all can see and feel and know because we are now 3,000 years down the road from this and uh, that some of these... Uh, Things that were in the holy place were actually pictures of Jesus. In fact, uh, in the Feast of Booths, which is in the previous chapter, um, the Israels and Israelites in procession would would praise God and, and move along, and, and the leader would have a menorah, this lamp stand in his hand, and uh, celebrating the Israelites bringing the light of the world. And it was in that very setting of the Feast of the Booths that Jesus said, "I am the light of the world." This picture of light in the temple and in the tabernacle, that's a picture of me. And, of course, we also know when we look at the bread that Jesus comes along and says, I am the bread of life. Yeah. And so these were also symbols. They met practical needs, but they're symbols of our good and amazing God, that he is our light and that he is our bread. He is our portion, the Bible says, uh, forever. I love uh, Psalm 73 where it says that God uh, is himself is, is our portion. Listen, Psalm 73 says, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and he is my portion forever. I have been captivated since my youth with Psalm 63 which says... In God, I find my soul satisfied as with the richest of foods. That God is my portion. He is my food. He is my bread. Jesus is the bread of life. At thy right hand, God says in Psalm 16, are pleasures forevermore. All that our hearts long for and all that our hearts want to feast on are found in, in God and his presence. And that's what we see here. I, I, I was at the men's retreat last weekend and... Uh, and uh, 
Saturday night is steak night for the men, you know, and about 70 steaks or more are big ones. I mean, <laughs> it takes a man to eat these things. These are monsters, right? But we're all men, you know, we got to eat this meat, right? So, and, uh, you know, I, I would really just show up at the tree just for that dinner, actually. If you want to know the truth about it, it's worth going just for that. And I think the men would agree. And in fact, it was kind of fun. I went up on the balcony up above the area where they're eating, and I kind of looked down. Watching 70 guys eating steaks this big is kind of a fun sight, you know. And, and there they are, you know, just eating. And, uh, and yet, as fun as that is, the greater thrill in my heart is to see those men coming to meet with God, to be changed by him, to see them turn to him, to God as their portion, to see them... Love God. I love it when men, and women, and children, but when men love God. I love that. I've had moments in my life where I have not felt the presence of God, and it was despairing for me, horrifying for me. We see this in the psalm. It happens to God's people sometimes. Maybe that's a season for you. But we're made for his presence, to enjoy it and to feast on it. And when we get that, that's when our hearts are, are at rest, aren't they? So that's the picture here. But God tells us now, then this, this whole book of Leviticus is about holiness. And so he says, who's going to send my holy hill? Who gets to be in my presence, right? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. <laughs> God's calling us to be a holy people to come into his presence. And that's what this book of Leviticus is about. Here's the law. Here's how you walk with me in ways so that you can come into my presence. Right? So let's move on now and talk a little bit about God's standard for holiness. God's standard for holiness. In chapter 24. And this is a kind of a startling account. Uh, once again, it's not something you probably preach unless it was given to you, you know. So here we go. Now an Israelite woman's son whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord could be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him the sojourners as well as the native, and he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Okay, so that breathe, right? That's, uh, that's shocking, right? And, and in our culture today, that's just shocking. It's a harsh penalty of God. And I, I think it reminds us one more time that God is so unlike us. Isaiah 55 
8 and 9 said his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways, right? We like to talk about how God is imminent and he is and what a blessing, right? To know that God is with us and he is close to us and loves us and showers his grace upon us. But he is also, and we talk less about this in our culture today, it's less popular, he's also transcendent. He's entirely different than us. He's more holy than us. <laughs> he's more just than us. And he says to us, be holy as I am holy. Not as you think is holy. You be holy as I am holy. And God hates sin. Sometimes we see that. And he has a just and holy wrath against sin. And in the New Testament, he tells us, here it is, right? I'm just going to quote the first half of the verse. The good news is in the second half, but I want to start here. The wages of sin is death, right? Wages of sin is death. Now, there's good news in the second half of this verse. We'll talk about that before we're done today. But, but the wages of sin is death. And all of us here this morning, right, have sinned, right, this week, probably today, likely, right, already. And yet here we are, <laughs> right? We're here, right? Looking pretty good this morning. <laughs> well fed. Smiling when the sermon gets a little happier. <laughs> right? The wages of sin is death, but we're here. What's with this? How do we answer that? It's because we have a God of mercy. <laughs> right? Mercy. We're all walking in mercy this morning. Isn't that a good thing? That's a sweet thing, by the way. Right? God is so merciful and so good to us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, it says in Psalm 103, verse 10. He is patient with us, right? 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. What a beautiful thing. See, God in his timeline created humanity, Adam and Eve, right, in a perfect world, and they were created perfectly by God, and they had perfect fellowship with him. And Satan comes along, and he says to the woman, eat this fruit of the tree of the garden here. Well, God told me not to eat it because if I do, I will die. Right? And Satan says, ah, oh, you're not going to die. God's just messing with you. He's holding things back from you. Right? And so she heard, and along with her husband who was with her, they ate of the tree of the garden. Right? The wages of sin is death. But they didn't die. <laughs> Did they? Then, mercy, right? And immediately God comes along with coverings and he begins to speak in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he will provide somebody that will bruise the head of Satan, take him out and provide a way of salvation. Right away, God immediately moves into a plan of mercy. This is our God, right? Though the law says the wages of sin is death, we saw it in the text we read. 
But God, by and large, shows us mercy, treating us patiently and kindly as we don't deserve. Right? Now, now don't, don't misunderstand God. In the end, everything will be dealt with justly. Right? And for those of us, this is the good news of the gospel. For those of us in Jesus, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And those of us who are in Jesus live forever, fully forgiven and God's wrath taken out on his son. The gospel, the beauty of the gospel. Right. And so we have a God who um, gives us his mercy and gives us covering and treats us patiently. But I want to remember, even in the middle of that, that God still calls us to his high standard of holiness. That's what Leviticus is about. You know, this last week, we, um, as a staff, sat around a table and did this very sobering thing of reviewing our abuse policy in the church. And uh, this is important for us, right? We want to be a place that's safe. We want to be a place where people treat each other with respect and dignity. We want to have procedures in place, place to guard us and keep us safe. And I think it's good for you to know that we, we do this. We sit around and talk about how do we protect each other as we come together on Sunday morning. And we take this really seriously. And we do everything we can to guard the safety and the security of people in this building when they come here on Sunday morning. I think you know that about us. And yet, I said to our staff on Tuesday as we did this, as important as this is, God is calling us to something much higher than just not assaulting and not abusing each other, right? <laughs> he wants us to go, I mean, that's sort of a, a low bar, we got to have that one in place, but, but God is saying, come on, let's go to a place where we love one another. Let's lay down our lives for each other, let's think of others ahead of ourselves Let's be kind and thoughtful and patient and gracious with each other, right? Our culture is calling us to a standard of not abusing and not assaulting each other. That's a good thing. We need to heed to that. That's long coming. But we need to go for, as Christians, to God's standard, which is way above that, <laughs> right? Don't even let a hint of sexual immorality be named among you, right? Just read the... Jesus' word in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, right? Um, don't even be angry at your brother. Right? Love even your enemies, all right? <laughs> I fell over there. So God is calling us to a much higher standard of, of holiness. And in that call to holiness, we need to drink deep of his mercy. And his mercy says, to begin with, as we've been saying this whole series, is that in Jesus we've been made holy. Now walk in it, right? You've been made holy. Jesus has made you holy. Men heard this a lot last weekend. You've been made holy. In Jesus, you have the righteousness of Christ. Now that's the power to walk in it. Now be it. That's what you are. Now be it. Right? It's a beautiful thing. And even the hard things that come your way as a Christian are meant to help you see the love of God and to know him and to become more holy, which you have been made. And so let us, as Christian people, not lower the standard of God, 
Let's keep it in front of us and walk in the grace he's given us to be that kind of person, right? Owe no debt to one another except to love each other. Lay down your life for each other. Now, thirdly in my sermon, this morning we're going to look at the standard of land and possessions. Again, I'm just preaching through the text here. I'm just taking what comes at me. Um, Now we move on to chapter 25. And 25 begins to talk to the, the nation Israel about how to handle land and possessions. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord, and you shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. So he gives some instructions regarding the land, which really is their possession. It really is their resources that God has given them. Furthermore, in verse 35, he gives some instructions to those who are poor. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. By the way, I I think we need to listen to this as Americans today. God cares about the sojourner. He cares about the exile. He cares about the person without a land. The verse 36, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend lend him your money at an interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God. This is said over and over in this chapter. Do this because I am the Lord your God, right, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And so God is claiming, as he says this over and over, that I am the Lord your God, that that all your land and all your possessions are mine. You're a steward of them. Steward them well, but they're mine. And as we relate to our land and possessions, we are really just learning how to relate to God as the one who owns and possesses all things. He reminds us in 1 Chronicles 29 when the temple was being dedicated that everything we have is from him. Listen to 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. And in your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That's how we're to relate to possessions, as if they're God's. They're all his. Talents and skills, it says, are from him. Even the favor of man to like you well enough to employ you and to keep paying you is from God. He gives you favor with people. That raise you got this year, it says God gave you favor with those people. Health and strength, the capacity to even get out of bed to go to work is from God. How dare we even think about saying, that's me. I'm the smart guy in the room. No. 
And the Israelites, you know, they're about ready to get to move into the promised land, right? <laughs> this land flowing with milk and honey and great wealth and great agricultural prosperity, right? God knew this was coming. This is going to be the biggest pay raise of their lives. <laughs> the biggest economic jump they've ever experienced. And God's saying, now look it, when you go into the land and you get all this prosperity, don't forget, this is me. <laughs> Ever had a big pay raise? Big job promotion? Right? I mean, here it is. God's giving it to him. And it's him giving it to him. Right? And so he says, I want you to trust me and obey me. And here's what he says. I want you to let the land sit every seven years. Really? I mean, this is how I make my money. <laughs> I got to sit in the seventh year and what do I do with that? God, that thing sounds crazy to me. Oh, no, no, no. I am the owner. Your job is to trust me and obey me with the resources I have given you. Furthermore, a little further in the text, we don't have the time to really get into it. There's a year of Jubilee coming on the 50th year where the land sits rests again. So there's two years in a row where it sits and rests in the year of Jubilee. Now what are you going to do? Two years? Oh, please, God, I can't possibly go two years without making my money on my land. Right? So what does God say to him? He answers that question for him in chapter 25 where we are here, verses 18 to 22. Listen to how he answers it. Therefore, you should do my statutes, keep my rules, perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. There will be a blessing. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat on the seventh year? What are we going to do? If we may not sow or gather our crops, and God says, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years in a row. Trust me. Just obey me and trust me and watch me come through. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop, and you shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. That's a powerful text now there. Obey God. Might sound crazy to you, right? <laughs> And I'm going to pour out a blessing so big you can't hold it. Does that sound familiar? Give me the first 10%, God says. Trust me in this. Does that sound crazy to you? It's not yours. You trust me. You give that to me and see if I won't come through more than you can possibly hold. Right? Beautiful, beautiful text. But at the core of this, it's really not about money. It's who is your God? How do you relate to God? Is God God or is money God? What do you trust in? What do you put your hope in? Right? God or money, Jesus said. You can't serve two masters. You'll hate one or love the other. Pick your favorite. Can't serve both God and money. And Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Right? So the our spiritual lives, this is why I think God gives us this chapter, our spiritual lives are bound up in how we handle our money and our possessions. I love Luke 16, 11. It says, if then you've not been faithful in worldly wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Right? God says, if you can't even handle 
the money I give you? How can I give you spiritual responsibility? There's so much bound up in our capacity to handle wealth well. And, and God says to me as a pastor and you as somebody who walks with him, if you can't handle money well and obey me and trust me in that, how can I entrust you with the big things of the kingdom? That's the question. See, it's not an issue of our money. It's an issue of God and how we relate to him. I've seen so many pastors mishandle money and their ministry get greatly affected. I've seen so many people mishandle money and their witness for God be greatly affected. I've seen people lose their jobs over this, right? Christians, pastors, right? There's so much bound up in our capacity to serve Jesus and how we handle the land that he's given us. Trust me, he says. I'll bless you. You'll see my hand like you've never, never seen it. So, by the way, we, as a church, we take this seriously. I mean, I, I met with our finance, one of our finance team people and elders this week, and we're putting together next year's budget. We always give the first 10% of everything we have to missions and ministry people outside of us to practice this tithe principle. And we're careful to put all of our money as directly into ministry as we can. We met as this church leadership team a week ago. And one of the questions, we were talking about some changes, and they said, will this be directly going toward ministry? Right, that's what we're aiming for, in all things to advance the kingdom. So we, we try to practice these principles as a church family. It's, it's important to us to honor God. And I trust that we are, are doing that. So I think we see that you, the level of importance and holiness that's placed on, on this subject. Okay, so let's go to the last point now. The last point, and this is um, a big section again, and... This is um, seen in other places in the Pentateuch in particular, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. But God says, you have a choice. Obey me or disobey me. Right? Here, here's, here's my law. Here's the rules. Here's, here's what I'm giving you to do. Are you going to obey me or disobey me? That's the question that comes to us, I think, in so many of these verses. So let's just hear from God here in Leviticus 26. First one, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall increase, shall yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the great harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not grow through your land. So God is saying, you obey me, and there's blessing. That's wisdom, isn't it, right? If God says this, if we follow it, there's blessing that goes with it. Conversely, verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statues and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments 
and but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Whoa. Right? Yeah. If you follow me, there'll be blessing. If you choose to rebel against me, there are consequences that are strong, scary, right? And so mercifully, right? Mercifully. I mean, when God gives us his law, a lot of times we see like we repose law in, in grace, right? God is gracious to give us his law because it shows us how to live in blessing and to walk in his way, right? Trace it out, right? Trace it out. You, Galatians 6, 7 says, you reap what you sow, right? So God says, here's how you, here's how you walk in blessing, right? Romans 12, 2 says, hear the word of the Lord. This is paraphrased. Try it out. And see if it doesn't prove to be a blessing to you. That my way is perfect. Joshua 24, 15 says, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? I, I want you to know, at some level, my heart breaks, even as I share these words. Because they're so strong. But they're, they're good for us, aren't they? God's words are good for us. It's sobering. God tells us, it says to the Israelites, that when you disobey and experience the consequences of disobedience, those consequences are me trying to bring you back. Listen to verse 27. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk more in contrary to you. In other words, the reason I gave you Harsh consequences at some level is so that you'll come back. And if you're still stubborn, then I'm going to amp it up a little more because he loves us so much that he wants to bring us back to him. Right? Come on, come back to me, people. You're experiencing the harshness of bad choices. Come back to me, God says. Come back. Verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery and they, that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with them. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. If you just turn, right? If you just... Repent. I'm here. I'm, I've got open arms. This is God's posture toward us. Come to me, right? Don't, don't live in your silly disobedience that leads to horrible things. Walk with me. He's so patient over and over and over again for hundreds of years with the Israelites, drawing them back. And he tells us, he says, you know, if you just confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Band, you can come on up. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That says, look it, just come back to me, right? Just confess my sin, and I am faithful and just to forgive you. And you have an advocate, a defender, Jesus, who argues for you based on his death. He has paid the price. You're free. It's by grace that we are saved through faith in Christ and what he did for us. And then he says this crazy thing. He says, I'm telling you this so that you don't keep on sinning. (laughs) In other words, to drink deeply of God's grace and his love and to know him and how much he loves you and cares about you becomes your motivation to not keep on doing the wrong thing. Isn't that great? It's an amazing picture. I think this is why God kind of cycles us back to our sin and pain by letting us go so that we come back to the cross one more time and see, oh my gosh, you still love me, God? That's amazing. I give my life to you. You are so good. Right? And so all these verses, they come to us, I think, as, as a warning, graciously inviting us to come to him. We might walk with him. Not to be rule keepers. This isn't about being rule keepers, right? This isn't that. It's about walking intimately with our good God. In fact, all of these commands he's given us just teach us how to walk intimately with him and know him and walk in love and how to put his glory on display. I was saying to the men this last weekend, I said, you know, even in your marriages, men, it's not about your marriage primarily that you should love your wife. It's about putting as an example of Jesus on display to the world. You get to be an example of Jesus and how he loved the church. And wives, as you respond to your husband's leadership, putting on an example of what the church and how they should respond to Christ, right? And in our words, our words are to be an example of Jesus, of graciousness, right? Colossians 4, 6, let your words be gracious, seasoned with salt, that the outsiders might see Jesus in you. It's not just your words. It's Jesus that's on display. It's about him. This is how to relate to God. Right? So the joy of getting to live and put God's glory on display and walk intimately with him, for him, for his kingdom is what this is about. And that's the invitation this morning. He said, come on, come back to me. Wherever you've been, come back to me. Walk with me. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more in my love and glorify me. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word that mercifully teaches us, convicts us, changes us. Help us, God, more than anything else to see that you love us, that these are words of grace to us today. Let us be hearts, have hearts of repentance towards you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Oh